The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements I want to make sure everyone is aware of. First of all, I've been asked about Ulan a couple of times. Ulan is the... Uh, as you know, he is the former Muslim who was persecuted by uh, other Muslims in his home country of Kyrgyzstan and had to flee because of that persecution. He's been in Berlin, and the last word I received is that he is going to be, uh, he's not going to be allowed asylum in Germany, but I heard that they're going to send him to Kazakhstan. Now, I have emailed a couple of people to get clarification on that because there's a tendency for many people to get Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan confused. So I just want to make sure that he is indeed going to be sent to Kazakhstan. At the same time, Joe Wall, who is the vice president in charge of training for East-West Ministry, has been a pastor in the Houston area for many years, uh, emailed me just three days before I found out about the other that they have an opening for him in their school in Almaty so he can get more training and uh and pastoral ministry, and that once they get to know him, then they can perhaps provide a place for him. So we need to continue to pray for him. I've emailed him three times in the last three days and have not heard anything, so uh, that's about the best I can do right now. Also, we had originally scheduled, as most of you know, a congregational meeting for this evening to discuss the new place of meeting over on the Beltway. Thursday night, the leadership made a decision to postpone that meeting two weeks in order to give us a little more time to finalize the figures and other information. We didn't have a final meeting with the uh, management company at that site until this last Monday. And so because of the uh, nature of things, we decided to postpone the meeting until we could present the congregation with a... Uh, an exact and correct uh, figures on all the build-out costs and everything else. So we will postpone that congregation meeting to the 21st of August. Also, there's only two copies left. I didn't even announce it the other night, but when we came back from the Conservative Theological Society meeting this last week, I was pleasantly surprised that my article that I wrote on the cessation of the gift of tongues was published in their March journal, and I brought several back, and there's two left, so when I say amen, don't kill each other trying to get the last two copies. Scripture says this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and to him, and through him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin the study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins on the cross. Every single sin committed in human history entailed a penalty because of Adam's sin of spiritual death. But Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross so that all sins are paid for. Yet, the responsibility of each individual human being is to put their faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant that you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, you're saved. And God does at least 40 different things for you at that instant of salvation, including uh, forgiving you of all pre-salvation sins and adopting you into his family. At that point, you have a new spiritual life. You're regenerate, the scripture says. We studied this a little bit in our lesson a couple of weeks ago, that you're born again. You have spiritual life and the capacity to have a relationship with God. But when we sin, that fellowship is broken. We're still members of the family. We don't lose our salvation, but that relationship is hindered. And the solution is to admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father. At that instant, we're promised that we are forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, so that we can move forward in our spiritual life. So we always begin class with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity in silent prayer to admit or acknowledge to God any known sins in your life so that you can be prepared and ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to study your word, for the freedom we have in this nation, for our forefathers who were willing to give their lives in order that we might have this freedom to study your word, to worship you without hindrance from government authority. Father, we thank you for your grace that you provided a perfect salvation for us, a complete salvation for us, that we might know with certainty that we have eternal life and that we have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given to each of us at the instant of salvation, that we can stand your word, study your word, and that it is the Holy Spirit who makes it real to us and the Holy Spirit who uh, stores it in our memory and brings it to recall for application. Now, Father, as we continue our study this evening on foundation for life, we pray that you would challenge us with the truth that we might be willing to set aside any preconceived ideas or notions about what truth is or who you are, and that we might listen to the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started a couple of weeks ago with our series on basic understanding of what Christianity is all about. In that first lesson, what we did was we focused on the interchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate at that crucial time just before he was condemned and sent to the cross. That interchange, Jesus made the statement that those who were of the truth would know him. Pilate scoffingly, skeptically dismissed that statement and said, what is truth? In our look at that 
interchange and the consequences of that, I pointed out that there are basically three different kinds of people on the earth. There are those who believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that there's nothing man can do to have salvation. Then there are those who have rejected, because of the influence of philosophy, human thought, down through the ages, they've rejected the possibility of even knowing that there's a God, knowing that there are absolutes, knowing that there's any truth. In other words, these are folks who basically said, if there's going to be any meaning or value or significance in my life, it's got to come from me. It's got to come from mankind. That There's no God. We're just a bunch of cosmic accidents. And then there's another group, and this is the religious group. These are the folks that were standing outside. They're, it's not restricted to Jews. It includes every human being. They tend to fall into one of the two categories that you found in Judaism at that time. Either the Sadducees, who were of the liberal kind, these are the ones who wanted to hold on to God talk and God words and religious activity and ritual. But on the other hand, they didn't really believe that there was a, an omnipotent, omnipresent God who interacted in human history. And so they were what we would call the liberal element today. They denied the supernatural. They denied the existence of angels. They rejected a future resurrection they were the rationalist religious crowd. And then on the other hand, you had the Pharisees, and these were the legalistic religious crowd. The fundamentalists are represented by every religion on the face of the earth today except for biblical Christianity. The religious crowd thinks that somehow, by virtue of their good works, by virtue of participating in certain rituals or activities, praying a certain number of times a day, going to a temple or synagogue or whatever it may be, six or seven times a week, going through various religious activities, that somehow that impresses God and that somehow they can gain God's favor, his approval, and that that somehow uh, compensates for any sin in their life. The problem with that, as we've seen, is that the Bible has a much more profound view of sin. The sin is something that so completely destroys and corrupts the human race that there's no possibility that man can ever do anything to compensate for his own fallen condition. Therefore, God in love and grace provided a Savior. And it's necessary for God to provide that Savior because man is born spiritually dead. That's where we ended the first lesson, talking about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where he said, if you want to see the kingdom of God... You must be born again. We came back last time and I pointed out that this claim of Jesus is a claim of exclusivity that often, often rubs people a little wrong. They think how arrogant this is that Jesus claimed to be the only way. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to be absolute truth. And so I said to understand why Jesus can be and is the only, the only way to God... We keep getting a reverb here. Why Jesus is the only way to God, we must understand the flow of thought in Scripture. So we started with Genesis and we went through Revelation. And we demonstrated that God in love continuously reveals himself to man. And this is absolute truth, yet, yet man, in his unrighteousness, in his rebellion against God, continuously tries to suppress that truth. They try to deny it. it doesn't, it's not real. I'm going to do, do it my way, God. I'm going to define the nature of reality. I'm going to uh, determine what 
you will accept from me in order that I may have a relationship with you. And so man constantly takes whatever God has revealed and he, he twists it, he spins it. You know, that's the big word today is you've got your, your uh, spin going on whatever is said so that you make it fit your own comfort zone. But the Bible is the original no-spin zone. And it tells the truth for what it is. And it claims that there is one and only one and only one truth. And the only way we can know it is to listen to God because of who He is. So in this third class this evening, we're looking at the question, who is God? Because the starting point to understand anything is the God and the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is the eternal Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with understanding the concept of truth, because truth is what people don't want to accept today. Truth in our postmodern world is, is open to uh, massage by anybody. Everybody's got their own truth. But Jesus said, I am the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And at the center of that is this phenomenal statement that he is the truth. Now, that's more than a simple claim to be teaching the truth. It's more than a claim that he holds true opinions or that what he is teaching is a path to truth. Because Jesus is claiming to be in his person the embodiment of truth with a capital T. Though it's true that he is claiming to teach truth and that he is claiming that he holds true opinions, it goes far beyond that, that he is making indeed a subtle claim to be the eternal God of the universe. Because the God of the Old Testament is also a God who is truth and who claims to be truth. When Jesus claimed to be the truth, he's not claiming to be T with a small T truth. There's what we call creation truth. This is truth that's open to empirical and rational perception by every human being, regardless of their spiritual status. They can, anyone can come to understand that one plus one equals two. Just take a couple of apples and go one plus one and put them together. You know it's two. You can come to understand certain lowercase t truth about physical laws such as gravity. But to understand overarching truth, that, that overall truth, that is the truth that gives meaning and definition and value to every detail in life, well, that's a different kind of truth. That is a uppercase truth, capital T, capital R, capital U, capital T, capital H. This is the kind of truth that the Bible is talking about Throughout the Old and New Testament, this is the kind of truth that Jesus is claiming he's the embodiment of in John 14, verse 6. It's interesting, the Hebrew word that is used for truth is a word that has a number of different nuances. It's the root word is the word aman, which is where we get our word amen, which means faith. But in different Forms the nuance of that root has a wide range of meaning. And here we have one form of it, the word emmet, in 2 Kings 18, verse 16. And you'd never guess it from looking at it, the translation, uh, 
But the word that is used here is a form of this word. It's the form emona. See, you can, if you listen, you can hear the cognate relationship between aman and amona and emet, which is truth. Here we read at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts, the pillars is another way it's translated, the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, we're not getting into the, the text or the isagogics or the passage right now, the historical background. What we were simply looking at is this word, Amona, refers to the pillars that anchored the massive doors to the Solomonic Temple in Jerusalem. And that's the root meaning. If you want to talk about it in scholarly terms, this is the core semantic meaning of this whole word group. This concept of something that anchors something, that provides stability, that gives a a, a bedrock foundation, something on which you can hang everything else. These are the pillars on which the massive doors of the temple hung. So the idea, the core idea of truth is that which is foundational. This is why there's a wordplay in the title of this series. This is called Foundation Singular, the foundation for life. Because the foundation for life is truth. And if you're going to do anything, it would seem to me in life, you must have a bedrock certainty that you're living your life on the basis of, of that which is true, not that which is false. And so when we look at this, this word group for truth, we have to, of course, define what truth is. Now, in the Greek culture, the primary nuance to truth was the idea of that which conformed to reality. But, of course, we know from our study of the word that, that the Greeks were not the people that primarily uh, defined the meaning of words in the Bible. That comes out of the... Uh, Hebrew Old Testament, and the concept of truth in the Old Testament is built on this understanding of that which is the foundation, that which is the bedrock, that which is so sure and certain and stable that you can hang everything in your life on that bedrock. And so that's where we start with our meaning of truth. So truth, therefore, from a biblical viewpoint, is that which doesn't derive from creation, but comes from outside creation. It must be of such a nature that it informs all of the decisions and activities and things that go on inside the created order. And so this truth comes from God. And this is clearly ascribed to God in a number of passages. For example, Psalm 86:15 says, But you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Now, the question we're answering tonight is, what is truth? I mean, who is God? Who is God? What, is, what are his characteristics? And I want you to notice that in this psalm, there are several attributes or characteristics of God that are mentioned. He is a merciful and gracious God. These are two different words emphasizing the same thing, emphasizing that God is... It gives undeserved merit or favor to mankind. He doesn't treat mankind on the basis of what he deserves, but he treats them on the basis of his own goodness, his own character. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And he extends grace and kindness to us. He is slow to anger. And in contrast, he is abundant in loving kindness and truth. And just a 
perusal of the, the words that are used here, you find that again and again and again in the Old Testament, these two words are connected. We'll see that as we go through this study. The truth is connected to loving kindness. And loving kindness is a word we've studied many times. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, which refers to God's faithfulness to his covenant. We've observed many times that God is the, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Bible is the only God of all religions that enters into contractual agreements with his people. And these are called covenants. And this is in order to accommodate himself to man so that man knows exactly how God is going to treat him and the conditions in which God is going to bless and judge mankind. And so this idea of loving kindness emphasizes the fact that God is continually faithful to his covenant, faithful to his people. And once again, faithfulness and truth are very close concepts when we talk about the person of God, the essence of God. Another passage is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. And this takes place when the Lord is, is uh, speaking to uh, Moses. And he says, now the, and coming down on the, to the temple after the uh, Israelites had, had uh, been delivered from Egypt. We read, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God is a God who abounds in truth. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, he is specifically making a claim that identifies him with the Old Testament God of truth. He's not a, just a good man. You can't say he's a good man. You can't say he's a fine religious teacher. You can't say he's just a good prophet. Jesus Christ claimed to be the God of the universe. He claimed to be full, undiminished deity. And the only way to have a relationship with God was through Jesus Christ. He's either lying or he's telling the truth, as I've pointed out in the past. And if he's not who he says he was, then he was the greatest deceiver of all time. Those are the only two options that you have available to you. He's either a great deceiver or he is the only savior of mankind. Another passage that describes God is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock, and that word rock, of course, is a picture for us of God's immutability, his stability. He is unchangeable. He's immutable. His work is perfect. This, of course, relates to his character of righteousness. God is absolutely flawless, ethically, morally. He is, he is pure. The word we use is holy that often has a, loses its meaning because it's, it's bandied about so much by so many different people who never take the time to understand it. So I prefer to talk about his perfection of righteousness and, and uh, justice. His work is perfect for all his ways or justice. Perfect refers to the standard of his character, as we'll see. Justice, the outworking of that uh, standard toward mankind. And he is a God of truth and without injustice. Notice how truth is integrally connected to his stability and immutability, to his perfect righteousness, to his justice. And the conclusion is righteous and upright is he. So all of these characteristics and attributes of God interconnect and interlink. You can't just go in and, and take one attribute out and just examine it 
as if it doesn't relate to the others any more than I could look at you and say, well, you look like uh, you're not very happy today, and so you must never be happy. Or you, uh, you seem to be very friendly, so under all and every and all conditions, you must always be friendly. You can't just take one attribute of a person, especially God who is complex. You can't take one attribute in isolation. They all interact and interconnect. And then the last verse I want to show you to demonstrate this principle is from Psalm 100, excuse me, Psalm 111, verse 7. Don't have a slide for it. The works of his hands are truth and justice. I want you to notice that, that that ties creation to truth. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. Now, what we do when we study the scripture, we go back to Genesis 1 because this is where God's revelation begins. And the principle is that the only way to know anyone with any certainty... To know them with any level of intimacy is to have that person reveal themselves to us. And people can reveal themselves to us in a number of ways. We can learn some things about folks just by the way they dress, just by the nonverbal things that they do, their production, their work. But when it's all said and done, that doesn't really tell us an awful lot about a person. We have to spend some time talking to that person. They have to speak to us. They have to communicate to us, tell us something about themselves, and so the same principle is true about God. That is, that we cannot know God unless He reveals Himself to us. You can't discover who God is by looking inside yourself. That's sort of a modern popular idea that that we can just sort of contemplate our navel or we can uh, go someplace and just meditate. That's the Eastern idea, just sort of vacate your mind and somehow uh, you will get to know God by not thinking. Uh, just sort of a backward idea compared to Scripture, but what Scripture teaches is that God has indeed revealed Himself to us and that when we understand God to be the God the Bible says He is in all of His attributes, He created man in such a way, as I pointed out last time, that we are in His image and according to His likeness. That is, we are a representation, a finite representation of God, and He created man in such a way that He could communicate to man, and man could understand that communication. God isn't just haphazardly throwing this creature together and just spitting in the dirt and just kind of, oh, let's see what pops up when I say, poof, there's a man. There is intelligence, there is thought, there is planning and purpose. And God not only creates man in such a way as to be able to hear, understand, and and respond to what God says, He knows that eventually man's going to sin, and that there has to be a solution to sin that man can't supply on his own. So he creates man in such a way that he will be able to incarnate himself into that human being when the time comes so that he can take on the penalty for sin himself. What we learn from the Bible is that the God of Scripture is unique among all other gods that man has devised. The God of the Bible is said to be have two basic attributes, and that is that he is personal and infinite. He's personal and he is infinite. Now, there is no other God other than, of course, the Jews worship the God of the Old Testament, so it's the same God. There is no other God 
in all of human religions that is both personal and infinite. When we get through looking at the attributes, you'll understand why this is true. I've divided these in a new way. This is a little fresh approach for some of you. I didn't want you to just become complacent and think you knew it all. We're going to look at these under two categories. On the left, we have personal. On the right, we have the categories that relate to his being infinite. As a personal God, what I mean is God has the attributes of a person. He possesses intellect. He can think. He can reason. He has uh, volition. He makes decisions. He communicates. He reveals himself. And he is able to interact with and have a relationship with other persons. Now, that's very important because we live in an age today where we have a lot of people who get involved in New Age thinking or they get involved with, uh, uh, you know, the, the force of Star Wars. And what you have is an impersonal or mechanical force or energy field or something like that that is supposedly at the root of the universe. But this doesn't give us a basis for understanding personhood at any point. It ultimately falls apart. As I pointed out in the first lesson when I showed the image of the covered bridges, the old covered bridges built in New England, you know, they're beautiful and they carry the weight they were designed to carry, but, but today they can't carry a heavy load. And this is the problem with all of the world religions is when you start talking about carrying the heavy load of the issues of life, they can't do it. They ultimately fall apart. Only Christianity can provide that basic fundamental answer. And so we see that God is a personal God and he is capable of having a relationship with others and with his creatures and he has designed them to have relationship with him. Second, he is infinite. And by infinite I mean that God has no limitations. He is bounded by neither time or space and he has created both. He has no limitations with respect to his ability to perform and accomplish what he wills to do. He doesn't have any limitations with regard to his knowledge. He knows all things. He knows the, uh, everything past and future. He knows all possibilities and every permutation of possibilities. We'll discuss this later when we get into the specific categories under God's uh, infinite attributes. So let's begin on the left side with his personal attributes. And the first attribute is that God is the sovereign creator. The sovereign creator. I've combined these together because ultimately we cannot separate them. The reason I place sovereignty in the personal column is because God must be the sovereign, the ruler, the authority over anything other than himself. Once he creates, he is the sovereign, he is the authority over all that he creates. But sovereignty is even integral within the Godhead, and we'll talk about the Trinity next time, even within the Godhead, because in the Godhead you have authority. God the Father is the ultimate authority within the the Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They all have the same attributes. So these attributes that we are discussing, these characteristics, are applicable to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are equal in their essence, but they have distinct roles within the Godhead. And so, even within the Godhead, there is one who is the ultimate authority, and that is God the Father. 
Now, sovereignty also entails creation and is connected to his work as creator. Before anything existed, you had God alone existing, and then he created the angels. And when he created the angels, he has the right to determine the nature and function of angelic existence. He is the one who determines the physical laws that operate for the angels, and he is the one who determines spiritual laws that relate to the angels and their worship of him. He is the one who defines their roles, responsibilities, and functions, so that when one of the angels disobeys God, and that is the brightest and best of the angels who we call Lucifer, when he sinned, he accused God, he was a antagonistic to God, so he acquired a new name, which is Satan. And so at that point, we have a fall. We have the entrance of evil into creation. God did not create evil, but the potential was there because he gave the angels uh, will or volition. Now, in sovereignty, what we understand is there's an implicit claim that God is the boss. That's what sovereignty means. He's the ruler. He is the one who has the right, therefore, as a creator, to determine the nature of everything. He sets the rules. He determines what right and wrong are. He is the one who has the right to say, this is how you will, these are the conditions under which you will have a relationship with me. There's a lot of folks that don't like that. And they just want to reject that. They want to make up, make up their own minds as to how God should have a relationship with them. In other words, they want to be God and they want to dictate to what they think is God the terms under which God will have a relationship with them. And this is the same thing that Adam and Eve tried. This is what Lucifer tried. But God says, no, I am the final authority. You do it my way or there are going to be tragic consequences and results. God is the one who sets the physical laws to be the way they are. And he is the one who sustains those physical laws. And God is the one who establishes the spiritual laws and the spiritual uh, realities. As a creator, what we see is that God wills. That's a function of sovereignty. He has the final will over everything. As, God, as the creator, God wills the kind of creation that exists. He determines uh, everything. Because of this, truth is what conforms to God's will. Truth is what conforms to the reality that God creates. When we live apart from that reality that God has created and his definition of that reality, we are living according to a pseudo-reality, a pseudo-truth. We're basically making up the rules as we go along. That would be like going out to a uh, professional football game, getting out on the field and saying, okay, I'm going to get out here and do everything the way I want to do it. Well, you're not going to last long at all. And that's what happens to the human race because in their rebellion, they want to be the ones to establish the rules. So God is the one who establishes the creation the way it is. He is the one who defines reality. And this is what we call truth. Now, as God has created everything, there is, this means that we can speak of an objective truth. Not just a subjective truth, not just what I perceive, but a, an objective truth that has reality totally apart from our existence or our perception. God has designed creation in such a way that it can be known. He's created man in such a way that man can know creation and know the truth, that man can analyze 
and that man can categorize creation as well as discuss it among ourselves, and God can enter into relationships with us. In all of this, what God has done is to exclude chance from the universe. Now, this is very important because this goes completely against the popular views of evolution, which basically teach that everything in the universe is a product of chance. But God creates with a plan and a purpose. Now, this goes against something else as well. Because God is personal, this isn't impersonal fate or determinism. You end up with that in other religions as well, where you have such an extreme predestination that it's whatever God wills, that's what's going to happen, and man can't change anything. That is also a very non-biblical, very pagan idea, and it goes against God's sovereignty because in God's sovereignty he has chosen to create man with volition, with the ability of self-determination, self-determination because man is also in the image of God. But ultimately God is the one who oversees and directs all things. Now, because God is so different from creation, because God is set completely apart from creation, when we understand this idea of causation between God's will causing all things and how we cause things, God's causation is different from our causation. This is where people get in that trap between free will and the sovereignty of God, is they want to say, well, man's will causes things at one level, but they forget that God's will causes things at another level. It's that distinction between the Creator and the creature. God's ways are not our ways, the Scripture says. So we have to understand that there's this distinction. Now, the bottom line of what I want to communicate, just basic understanding of sovereignty, is that God is the ultimate authority in the universe. And truth, as such, is seen in Scripture to be directly connected to His creative activities. This is seen in Psalm 146, Verse 6, God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He keeps truth forever. Notice that. He keeps truth forever. That, that, that sustains the truth that he has built into creation forever. And that relates to his sovereignty and his authority because he is able to do that. It also relates to his omnipotence. He's powerful enough to maintain that truth and no creature can... Uh, can destroy that or change that. The next category of God's personal attributes is righteousness. Righteousness relates to his standard, his moral, ethical standard. A word that people often use to describe God is holy, and that word is a word that's so often misunderstood. Holy at its very root means that which is distinct or unique, and that which is set apart. And what sets God apart the God of the Bible, apart from all other gods and goddesses, all other religions, is that he is perfect, absolute righteousness. And that word for righteousness is an interesting word. It is the Hebrew word tzedakah, and it can be translated righteousness or justice. Now, I don't have a slide here, but the Greek word is dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, dikaios. What's interesting in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the Greek of the New Testament use a single word group to describe both righteousness and justice. Both righteousness and justice are described by the same word group. So in Hebrew, you have a word group based on the root sadak, 
In Greek, you have the righteousness and justice based on the word group dikaios. What that means is that they are two sides of the same coin. Righteousness is the standard. Justice is the application of the standard. So that in both of these languages, you had one word group that defined them because they're so closely uh, linked. They're so interchangeable. God's righteousness, we understand that God's character is absolutely flawless. That God's character is actually the standard for what is right. There is no, we have to guard against this because sometimes we talk this way. We say, well, whatever God does is going to be is, uh, is, uh, fair or righteous. And we say it in such a way as if we almost imply as if there's this external standard of right that all of God's actions are going to conform to. There's this abstract concept that we have of what comprises justice or righteousness or fairness, and whatever God does is going to conform to that. That's a very Greek philosophical concept. What the Bible presents is God's character itself is the standard of righteousness. He doesn't conform to anything else. There's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. There's no abstract principle that God conforms to. He is the definition. He doesn't conform to a definition. So in God's character, he is perfectly righteous. Now, righteousness represents the standard of his character. And because God is perfectly righteous, he can't have any relationship with anything that is less than righteous. And we see his righteousness displayed in creation. So we've already seen his, he's sovereign. That means he has a right to make creation the way it is, make all the rules, make the spiritual laws. And in his righteousness, he establishes conditions on the earth that are consistent with his perfect, flawless character. So that when God creates, in Genesis 1, everything is perfect. There's no sin, there's no evil on planet earth. Satan has already fallen. He's being restricted at that point. And he creates a perfect environment, places man in the perfect environment, gives him a test. And that test revolves around a prohibition. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for instantly when you do, you will die. This is an expression of God's righteousness. That's the standard. The standard of his righteousness is that you obey me 100% or there are serious consequences. If you try to put yourself in a position where you're judging what I say, you put yourself in a position where you disobey me, then that violates my standard and then I have to apply my standards to you in justice. And there will be a condemnation that is immediate death. And we know from the study of Scripture that this is not simply physical death, but it is primarily spiritual death or separation from God. For we know what happened. And we see the demonstration of God's justice, that is the application of His standard, in the very next chapter in Genesis 3 when Eve is tempted by by Satan who is in the form of of a serpent. And Satan comes and tempts her and says, well, did God really say this? And then he made a counterclaim to God's truth, and he said, you're not really going to die. Well, she immediately, she just walked into the trap. He baited it, and she took the bait. And she's going to judge whether or not God is true or false. And that started her on a very quick, slippery slope that led to her sin, because as soon as she put herself above God to judge the veracity or the truth of his statement, she was already uh, on the path to eating the fruit. 
She was ready to go because she was acting like God. That's what Satan said. The reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is if you do, you'll be like him. Ah, she thought, I get to be like God. So she started acting like it, and she was going to evaluate his, his statement, his truth claim. So what we see is that looking at the initial chapters of the Bible, God's sovereignty... His right to rule is established. He's ruling over man who is under his authority, and God is righteous and he establishes the standard. Psalm 119, 142 says that your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. So we see truth being displayed right there with that prohibition. Is it true or is it false? Eve sets herself in a position to judge its veracity, and the result is that she sins, and then she leads her husband into sin. And then we come to our next category, which is divine justice, God's justice. Justice concerns the outworking or the application of God's perfect standard to his creatures, and that there are judicial consequences to disobedience, and that judicial consequences that man is condemned to a spiritual death. He's going, all, every human being since Adam is born spiritually dead. And the only way to recover from that is on God's terms, and that is to trust his promise of a Savior exclusively. Uh, not believing in Jesus and believing in something else, not believing in Jesus and doing good works, but trusting in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Now, in divine justice, we're often faced with our own limitations because we live in a fallen world where evil exists and there's all kinds of unjust things that happen. There's many times folks get very hung up on the fact that there's so much injustice and evil and suffering within the world. We'll get into some discussions of that later on, but the bottom line is God has created a world where man has volition. And when man abuses his volition, then there are horrible consequences. But ultimately, what the Bible teaches is there is a resolution to evil and the problem of evil. And this is seen in an expression from Abraham in Genesis 18.25 where he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God will do right and make all things right. And this is a function of his justice. Psalm 89 verse 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Notice how the psalmist links four attributes of God, his righteousness, his justice, his loving kindness, and truth. These are four of the five attributes of God that I have on the left-hand column under personality. Righteousness is the standard of his character. Justice is the application of that standard. Loving kindness is related to his love for all mankind and his faithfulness to his own character and whatever he reveals and then truth is the uh, definition of reality. And that is, of course, expressed through the Word of God, through His revelation to man. So we have the next category, which is that God is truth, or veracity is another word you're familiar with. God is absolute truth. He defines truth. He has the right to because He is the sovereign Creator, because He is perfectly righteous, His truth is perfectly righteous, and because he is absolute justice, that truth is always fair and just to man, 
and we must rely on it, as Abraham did, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, even when we don't understand all of the ramifications. And then the fifth category is that he is love. He is absolute love. Now, this is fantastic to understand that, the, that God is, at its very core, love. In First John, First John, we know that God is absolute love. Now, this is perhaps one of the most difficult concepts for people to grasp when they talk about God. And it is my contention, and not just mine, but the contention of many, that the God of the Bible, the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the only God that is love. There is no other God that is truly love, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. When we talk about love, we have to understand that it is not what we frequently think of within our own frame, limited frame of reference. Human beings often think of love as pleasant emotions, as sentimentality, uh, warm feelings to people that we're, uh, to whom we're attracted. Uh, sometimes we import into the idea of love the idea of needing someone. But you see, we can't apply any of those concepts to God. So when we talk about God's love, we have to look at the Scripture to find out what love is. The best way to, do, to summarize this is to simply say that divine love is God seeking and providing the very best for the object of His love. He is seeking and providing the very best for the object of His love. But one thing that we see with love is that love always has to have an object. Let me, uh, I don't have the overhead up there. Let me explain. Whenever you make a statement, I love you, you have to love something. You love you, you love your neighbor, you love a friend, but you always have to love something. If you are God, and you have existed for eternity, and you are truly inherently love in your character, and there is no person for you to love, then you have to create something in order to love it which means now you're dependent on your creature. You're dependent on that creature so that you can be who you are as a God of love. This is why you can't have a solitary monotheism. This is why Unitarianism doesn't work. This is why Islam doesn't work. Is because ultimately those gods they generated can't love eternally because they don't have an eternal object. But with the triune God of the Bible, there is an eternal Father, there's an eternal Son, there's an eternal Holy Spirit. And billions and billions and billions of years ago, God is loved because God the Father loves the Son. And God the Son loves the Father. And God the, the Holy Spirit loves God the Father and God the Son. And so love is an eternal attribute in God that is never creaturely dependent. See, that's the problem when you make these claims in other religions that God is love is that that God becomes dependent upon creatures to be able to exercise this attribute. But as soon as God becomes dependent on anything to be who he is, he, he's not God anymore. He's creaturely dependent. And so no other God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the New Testament, the God who exists as a triune God, is a God who is inherently a God of love. So Psalm 117.2 says, For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. We see the connection between loving kindness and the expression of truth. 
Psalm 57.10, Your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. You see, it is the love of God that is the foundation for forgiveness. It's the love of God that's the foundation for grace. It is the love of God that provides salvation for man. Psalm, Psalm 85.10 reads, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Notice the connection again between loving kindness and truth. Between righteousness here and peace. Because God is a God of love, He will provide peace to man. So that someone who believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins can have a harmonious rapport with God. They are reconciled to Him because of that salvation. This is what God says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world. See, you don't have a statement like that in any other, in any other religion. God, what God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who loved the world. He, has, he is a personal God. He expresses that love for all mankind so that He did what? He gave His unique Son. His unique, His one-of-a-kind Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, He gave His Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God loves every human being because they're created in His image. But because man sinned, they violate God's standard, they're under condemnation. But God in love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for man so that the eternal second person of the Trinity was able to become a human being because that's how God designed things. And having become a human being, he entered into human history through the virgin conception and birth. He therefore became fully human while he was still undiminished deity. And he grew to adulthood, passed through numerous tests which qualified him to go to the cross. And on the cross he died for your sins so that you could have eternal life. Romans 5.12 says that God demonstrated His love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. God did not say, you have to get good. You have to be straightened out. You have to do a few things before I can love you. God said, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you while you're an obnoxious, sinful, rebellious creature. While there is nothing in you good, Romans chapter 3 says, there is none who does good, no, not one. We are all equally condemned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God provided salvation through one person, Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. This is the core attribute, some might say. There are other attributes that relate to this, but God is absolute love. And because of that, He provided salvation for all mankind. Now tonight we've covered those first five attributes that relate to God's personhood. That He is a personal God. But He is not just a personal God, He's an infinite God. This is where many of the ancient religions, the polytheistic religions, broke apart. They had many different gods, and they're all personal, but they're not infinite. They were gods that had all the flaws and foibles of mankind. Look at the Greek uh, cultures, the polytheism of the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and they have these personal gods, but they're limited. They're not infinite. And then you look at some other religions and they have this infinite thing out there, or even in deism where they say there's this infinite God, but he's not personal. 
It is only the God of the Bible that gives you an infinite personal God, and it is on that basis that you have truth, real truth, on which you can hang every issue in your life, and which gives meaning and purpose and value to everything in life. But when you reject the truth of the Bible, God is very clear that the condemnation is certain, and that is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But God in his grace gives each of us that perfect solution through Jesus Christ. And all that's required is to accept the free gift, to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And at that instant, you enter into a new life, new relationship with him. It's not because of what you did. It's because of everything that God did for you out of his love. And that is why Jesus can say, I am the truth. No one can come to the Father except by me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for its clarity, that it defines our condition so precisely and it establishes truth so clearly. And the overarching truth is that you have provided a salvation for us, that you desire a relationship with us. You desire to interact with mankind. We are created in your image and your likeness. We are a finite representation of you, not finite gods, but a representative of you, and you desire to have that relationship, and because of sin, that's been breached. So the only, the only way to salvation is through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that if, that if there's anyone here this evening who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, God says the best that you can do is nothing but garbage. But Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for you so that the righteousness of God might be found in you. God provided a solution to your unrighteousness, and he sent his son to die for you. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and comprehend these things, that you'd make the gospel so clear to each one of us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.